And we are back on The Chosen Journey with Steve Carsey and Jonathan. Steve, before we jump into today's topic, uh, you've been doing some analysis since last week, and we've got to go back to Luis Arise here for a moment. Uh, digging back to his numbers, you seemed very set on Ted Williams and where he was at. So tell me something. Are we on par with Ted Williams? Is this is where we're at with this season for him? Uh, it, it's moving in that direction. Um, obviously, the walks are, are a little bit different. Ted Williams had 147 walks in 1941, uh, and, and Araz is uh, projected to have, I think, only 47 walks, and that's 100 less walks, which means he'll have 100 more at-bats, which is going to make it a lot tougher for him to get that at 400, uh, you know, 400 mark. Well, you, you were giving me the numbers. I've, I've written it down. we got the trusty pen. We're all set to go. So Ted Williams in the full season versus Araz in the halfway marker. So we're almost like at the 50% going. So 143 games for Ted Williams versus 70 games for Araz. So let's multiply by two as we do these. 456 at-bats for Ted Williams. Araz already has 267. So projected a lot more at-bats. 185 hits for Ted. Already 106 for Raz, so he's projected to be well over 200. I think you said 220-something as far as hits. Now, strikeouts, fast-forwarding for a second. Ted Williams, 27 strikeouts. Araz, 15. Almost identical. So neither one is striking out. So the big clincher here that you were mentioning, 147 walks for Williams at the halfway mark for Raz, 22. Now... 22 walks to 15 strikeouts is still incredibly impressive. Yes, I mean, he's is. taking a walk. To me, if you're a good hitter, you got to be able to break at least 50 walks minimum. I mean, like the elite elite are getting 100-plus walks, get at least 50, great. But 147 walks, and this is not Barry Bonds' time. <laughs> In 1941, 147 walks, pretty freaking impressive. Wow. It's incredible. Mind-blown, mind-blown. So... To be spoken about in the same breath as Ted Williams, kudos, kudos. Now, another team we got to give kudos to, and I'm going to give you a little uh, sneak. Uh, I've been wearing red for the last couple of weeks because I've been feeling very red lately. Now, we give so much love to the East Divisions in the AL and NL. We give a lot of love even to the West, you know, with the Rangers, the Astros, and the Diamondbacks, and the Padres. The central divisions kind of we leave them to be so it seems in the al certainly it's the kind of division where you may not even finish in 500 and you're still going to lead your division that's how scary it is in the al central right now now over in the nl central you think i'm wearing this color shirt because it's the cardinals because every year it's the brewers and cardinals seemingly that's neck and neck we forget about the cubs the pirates and the reds now the cubs going off to london you know, entering the series with the cards, both were under 500 in that in that division. And Cubs have their own issues since the World Series. We know that and still in a little bit of rebuild. We got very excited about the Pirates beginning of the year and still pretty excited about where they're headed, you know, as far as the combination of vets and rookies, you know, seeing them grow. But the one team that is captivating baseball right now that is not the Rays and not the Rangers is the Cincinnati Reds. Steve Carsey. How did I sleep on the Cincinnati Reds? How did I write them off for dead? How are they pulling this off? How did anybody write off the Cincinnati Reds, right? I mean, I think we all did, to be quite honest with you. Uh, we all put them in the rebuilding stage. And, uh, you know, and, and now you look at them. And, again, 
it, it, it's not obviously a great division, the NL Central. And, you know, some, some teams are beat up with injuries like the Brewers. The Cardinals are having a way down year. Uh, you know, the Cubs are just the Cubs. Um, but the Cincinnati Reds have been playing really good baseball. And, uh, you know, they find themselves at the top of the uh, NL Central at this point. And, you know, who knows how that's going to end up. But, uh, you know, all of a sudden the Reds think they're good. So as long as you have that belief that you're good, you may hang around a while until, uh, you know, so, until something steers you off the tracks. I'm feeling a good rant coming on. It's coming on. I'm feeling it. it's like flowing through my system. So here we go. When your top hitting prospect can't even be called up because there's no room in the inn for him, that is mind-blowing. I went and watched some videos on Christian Encarnacion Strand. If you have not seen this name before, because everybody is very obsessed with Ellie De La Cruz and they were together teammates, go watch Strand in the minors and his power on freaking real. But what positions does he play? First base, third base. A little bit of an issue when you have this many hitters. Joey Votto, remember him? Well... He's around. He comes back. And what does he do in his first game? Only gets a home run. Ellie De La Cruz, you know, five-tool player, most exciting player in baseball right now. Everybody's jumping on the De La Cruz bandwagon for good reason. Watch him in the field. Watch him on the base pass. And since he's come in, and they were doing really well, the Reds, when he came in, they went to yet another level. Jonathan India, former rookie of the year. Matt McLean comes in at the beginning of the year. And what does he do? He bats second, and all he does is fill up the stat sheet every single game. TJ Friedel's there. Uh, Edwin Diaz 2.0. Alexis Diaz is their closer. And guess what? He lo does look like Diaz, and he does pitch like Diaz. And you need some pitching? Sure. Let's bring in Andrew Abbott. And what does he do? He just doesn't give up any runs to start off his career. Wow. Wow. Well, like, you know, some teams, Steve, have one, two prospects. They bring around solely. They just brought up the whole farm at one shot together, and they're all playing like they think they're in Louisville, and they're killing together. Uh, to me, catch me if I'm wrong. You've brought this up before when you were in the J system and coming up through the system to there, but there's something very special when you go through each level with your teammates and you all get called up at the same time, right? A hundred percent. You know, I, I think that they keep a core group of guys together, and when they get to bond and know each other and you – play on the same field, the game becomes slower and it become, becomes second nature. I mean, and that's how, in my opinion, good teams develop winning cultures is you get a group of boys when you draft them, you put them in and you move them level to level to level, unless there's a necessity that you have to extract one of them at a thing at, at a certain time uh, because there's a thing in the big league where a guy gets hurt or, uh, you, you know, you just need somebody to, to fill in uh, at, at that point. But if you play level to level uh, with a group of guys, uh, it's just like growing up in a neighborhood, right? You have the same friends. You go out and play football or basketball or baseball. You just know them so well. You almost know what they're going to do, uh, you know, when it comes to a certain play or, uh, you know, a, a basketball move or where they're going to be on the court. You just know because you've done it for so long with them uh, as, as a group. And, and that's what it becomes is, is these guys know each other. They trust each other. They've built this friendship. They built this bond. And uh, next thing you know, you, you put these guys on a big league field and the expectation is not there for them and they exceed expectations and you see what's happening. 
And the guy I did not mention on purpose, Hunter Green. Seems like he's been around forever. Remember him, top prospect. What does he do? All he goes out and does is strike out 10 guys every single game. Like, what an arm on this kid. A lot of people forgot all about him, but he was a top prospect in baseball for a reason. Getting the run support. Uh, doesn't always get the wins for it, per se. And part of it is also, you know, you, uh, how many innings you pitch, right? You, you pitch five innings, 10 strikeouts, give up a couple runs. A lot of these games get decided in later innings. This is not a, a game where the starters always factor into decisions. But if, if Hunter Green strikes out 10, 10 batters a game, finishes with a 3.5 year array or less, and doesn't show the wins, to me, that's still a successful season. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it all depends on, on, you know, what you believe a starting pitcher should do. You know, is he a guy that should go five innings and punch out 10 and keep your, you know, keep your team in the game for five innings or is it more of an old school thinking where I want my starter to go seven or eight and, uh, you know, get me to the back end of my bullpen and, and try to, you know, secure the W for himself. And and that's the reason I think we won't see another 300 game winner is until baseball wraps its head around, you know, starting pitching. And I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about you're paying a starter $30 million to go out and pitch five innings. I mean, it's uh, it's mind blowing to me, but uh, that's where the game is and how it's become and, and how it's measured. So, you know, in this day and age, that's kind of what we what we have to live with. But uh, at the end of the day, you're right. It is a successful season in today's standards for a guy who puts up some innings and has a ton of strikeouts and doesn't let the other team put the ball in play. Last two questions. One of them I'm going to fast forward to, and this is going to be probably one of my dumber questions, but now with Phantom Runners and extra innings, I don't know anymore, Steve, but do you foresee a day where to get a win, all you'll have to do is keep a lead from the third or fourth innings? Like, are we going to come to that point where we're going to have to change the whole stat on wins to be eligible? Because you see a lot of openers, right, when that happens and they pitch their two innings, three innings, and even as far as starters go these days and, like, the five being the cap, if you big if you build a big lead, let's say third inning, and you were starting, you went three innings, and then for whatever reason you got put, pulled in the fourth or before the fifth, do you foresee a day where a starter will be eligible for a win under those circumstances? Listen, I got to the point where I never say never anymore, but it would be really hard to it would be really hard to have them calculate that you can pull a starter in a third inning and give him the win because your team has the lead. I mean. Uh, you know, how, how fair is that to all of the other pitchers who have played this game prior to that and has had leads after the third or fourth inning and maybe lost them in the fifth or sixth? Um, you know, at the end of the day, I don't see that being changed. But uh, again, you, you never know uh, with some of the crazy things that uh, people think of uh, and, and wanting to add new rule changes to the game. Never asked you this before in our friendship, but uh, something I, I should have asked you a long time ago, even the stat of what a quality start is, right? Yep. Six innings, and yep. you have to give up three runs or less. Yep. So you 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 pitched six innings, you gave up three runs. Over nine innings, that's a four-and-a-half-year rate, right? Yep. Why is that a quality start? They go by average runs per game, so if you can give up less than the average runs per game in a major league baseball game, which would be just a hair over three, then it becomes a quality start because you give your team a chance to win. Um, you know, again, at the end of the day, 
if you are a healthy starting pitcher and you pitch six innings a game over 30 starts, you're giving your team 180 innings. And if you can be between the 180 and the 200 mark in innings, that's an unbelievable burden that you take off of your team over the course of a, a full year. You know, I think it's something like, depending if you're home or away and extra innings and all of that, but you have to cover somewhere between 1,350 and 1,400 innings a year as a pitching staff, roughly. So for your, if you have three starters that can cover 600 innings, then you only have to cover 800 for the remaining of the staff. But if you have your whole staff as a starting rotation, pitch 150 innings each, you know, you know, you're looking at what? Five, six, 750 innings. You still got to cover 750 innings or 650 innings with your bullpen. So that becomes, uh, you know, a bigger burden on those guys and health and how much they have to pitch. I'm putting numbers and names here to myself because when I look at Cincinnati and I look at Texas, for example, the key difference that I'm seeing is the pitching staff. If you take Texas's pitching staff, you take Iovaldi, you take John Gray, Martin Perez, uh, Dunning, and the fifth name is escaping me right now. I know that uh, we have Buddy uh, DeGrom is is done for the year. Yeah. But they still had a fifth starter that the name is escaping. Oh, Andrew Haney. Haney mm-hmm. was the guy. So you notice a lot of these guys were good arms, injury prone, a little bit of question marks. Texas felt good about them. They brought them on, and pretty much everybody's taking their turn. Everybody's pitching at least five innings. That's a luxury Cincinnati does not have. You take Texas pitching staff and you put it in Cincinnati, they're they're now 1A, 1B as far as that's where my real credit to Texas goes. We talked about it in the previous episode. I mean, Texas out of the world right now, every position is pretty much an all-star. You look at the all-star voting, all their players are either in the all-star game or were runner-ups. And for a good, not just because they were, you know, uh, filling up the ballot boxes. You know, go look at what Semin has done with Jonah Heim, yeah. Lowe. The names go on and on. Cincinnati ain't that much different. They, some of them came up a little later, but their numbers are astronomical. It's when that pitching staff comes along. You know, they were counting on Ashcraft. Ashcraft got uh, injured and, and and wasn't playing that well. And you were relying on rookie pitchers. It's a tough thing. You know, there's there's only two classes. It's those pitchers that come up like the Abbots of this world and can just, you know, get you uh, beautiful shutouts, game in and game out, it seems. And otherwise, what is it, Steve, about the pitching prospects you know, they have these video game numbers in double AA, A, triple A. They come into the major leagues. There's no guarantee they're going to be able to pull that off. It feels like sometimes pitchers have a little bit of a harder transition than hitters. Am I right or wrong on that one? I think it depends on the player. I mean, it's a combination of both. But listen, there's nothing like a big league hitter. That's why it takes some time in transition. Big league hitter can hit a fastball. You know, now it just depends on how good that young man is being able to throw strikes with his off-speed pitches. Can he throw his off-speed pitch when he's behind in the count? Uh, you know, what kind of temperament does he have on the mound? Like, you know, in, in double-A AA or triple-A, if you go through a double-A or triple-A lineup, there's two, maybe three guys that could hurt you. If you can wiggle around them, you don't have anything to worry about. It's not the same in the big leagues. You can't wiggle around two or three guys in a big league lineup and expect to get all of the other ones out. So – uh, that's the transition, and that's why it's so hard to pitch at the major league level. 
is because, you know, lineups are relentless. They're big league hitters and, and they're really good. So if you don't have stuff and you can't get people out in the strike zone uh, and you're always getting double A AA and triple A guys to chase your stuff out of the strike zone, that doesn't happen in the big leagues. And I think that's why it's, uh, you know, a little bit more of a uh, growing process for a pitcher when he comes to the major league level to be successful. And some teams groom hitters and some groom pitchers. That just seems the way it is. You take a look at what Cincinnati's done with hitters, the way they bring them up seemingly, okay, we're, we got another injury or we want to bring another boost. Here's another 30 home run hitter for you. Cleveland does the same thing with pitchers. Every time somebody's hurt or something happens, well, we got another big arm coming along and Cleveland's system time in time out. And that's where, you know, it's, I, I kind of like that approach because you either have a set pitching staff or, or a hitting lineup, and then you got to acquire what you're missing. Like the way we talked about with the twins and the Marlins getting together. And this is where Cincinnati hopes to do anything in the playoffs. First of all, they hope to make the playoffs and then they hope to do anything. Steve, they're going to have to get up some of that surplus hitting. They're going to have to get some arms into that rotation, maybe two arms in the rotation, at least one bullpen arm. And it's a totally different team all of a sudden. Yeah. You know, I've, I've always been told uh, by front office and executives pitching and defense wins championships. Uh, so if you can develop pitching and you can develop really good defense, uh, you know, hitting hitting is one of those things where if you have enough pitching, and I've been part of it with uh, Milwaukee, you know, if you have just enough hitting to get you by, your pitching will, you know, carry the rest. Now in the playoffs, it becomes a little bit different, you know, because you're going to have to score some runs in the playoffs. You can't score 0-1 because you can't expect the burden of your pitching staff to, to always throw a shutout or give up two or less runs every game in the playoffs because – you know, you see a team for five or seven games, and if you see the same pitching over and over again, you kind of get a beat on that. Um, so at the end of the day, uh, teams have their philosophy of what they want to develop and, and what makes their, uh, you know, roster construction tick. And some of them go more on the heavy on the offense and, and some plan trying to go a little bit heavier on the, on the pitching and the defense end of things. I'm definitely not counting out the Phillies this year because uh, they have four guys in that pen that could be closers on any team pretty much. It's uh, it's interesting, their construction. And obviously, we talked about their hitting ad nauseum. So, you know, people are saying, oh, are they going to be sellers? What's going to happen? It's still, to me, it's still pretty soon at the All-Star break to start counting as far as buyers and sellers. But the Reds certainly uh, going to need to get some, some pitching in there, and they've acknowledged it. And they said, if we're going to make it anywhere, we're going to have to trade some of the hitting. The Rangers are still the team that scares the bejeebers out of me, plus the Rays. You know, they're just damn good. I was watching yesterday. McGlanahan um, was uh, was taken out early. They had a little bit of a back issue, but they're saying hopefully she should be okay. But, you know, they have a nice depth of hitting in there. Defense is great. Starting pitching, bullpen. Like, when you got a full-rounded team, there's not a lot of teams like that right now in Major League Baseball. Everybody, I can look at almost any team, and I can see their shortage. There's very few teams that are that exact. And right now, to me, it's the Rangers and Rays. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the Phillies are going to have to catch the ball. If they can't catch the ball, they're not going to be able to win games. I mean, it's as simple as that. I don't care how good your pitching is. They can't strike out everybody out. Where's that uh, saying goes? It's a pretty simple game. You hit the ball, you throw the ball, you catch the ball, right? Now, last question today, and I'm going to give you a little toughie because uh, I've been thinking about this one a lot. But Joey Votto back right now, and, you know, great ambassador to the game and, you know, 
Loved his swing. You know, another guy who I thought one day may hit 400, but that ain't going to happen, but always took a walk. He's on his last last year right now because he has an option, which I don't believe is going to be picked up. With the Reds contending right now, does he get traded, you think? Do you think he plays out the season? Is he going to retire Red? If you were a betting man, what do you see with Joey Votto? You had to predict at this point. I think he finishes the season out with the Cincinnati Reds. I think he retires as a Cincinnati Red, and, you know, he rides off into the sunset. I just have a hard time seeing Joey Votto in a different uniform uh, in his playing career. You know, he's done great things, uh, pure hitter, um, a character of the game. And, uh, you know, he's been beat up with injuries. He's getting a little older. I'm not sure exactly how old he is, but uh, – 30s, you know, I think. Yeah, I was gonna, that's kind of what I was thinking, 37, 38. And, you know, uh, I just think if, uh, you know, you don't see many, many of these guys anymore who have stuck with one team throughout their career, and I think that's kind of – you know, you know, where he falls is, is he stays with these guys, he finishes the season, rides it out, and then, uh, you know, becomes part of their organization in, in some sort of fashion uh, after his playing career is done. You know, having grown up in the Toronto region, uh, going back to his uh, alma mater uh, in high school and everything else uh, in the off season, I still don't see him wearing the, the blue and white. I just can't see it. I see him as a red as well. I do not want to see him come to the Jays or anywhere else. I, he's a red to me. So having a history of this in the past with the Cincinnati Reds, any chance we could see maybe a player coach type role? I don't see it. In this modern day and age, player coach ain't going to happen? I, I just don't see it happening. You know, again, never say never, but yeah. I just don't see uh, him as being both that player and, and, and coach. I think him him with his injuries and whatnot, he's, he's finished uh, at the end of the year and he kind of just goes about his business. And if he wants to stay in the game, I'm sure he can stay in the game. If he doesn't, then he can go and, you know, go to the backwoods of the wilderness and in Canada, build a nice cozy comfy log home and do as much hunting as he wants to do and pray that the mlb network does not block him out from uh from the signal of the broadcast <laughs> uh he, definitely we're seeing him as a future hall of famer i think that's going to happen for him i haven't had a chance to take a look at his numbers yet but i'm going to tell you considering some of the people that are shot about i think he's going to have a really good chance when time will come uh i see good things for him and uh yeah I, maybe he'll hang on for one more year if if, if the role's there but certainly, uh, he's that person because of how much he's associated with hitting, with his batting eye. Uh, he seems to be very personable. You know, teammates always speak very well of him. I think we see future hitting coach. I don't know if he's going to be a manager, but it's certainly a hitting coach if he wants it, if he wants it. But, you know, we've talked about there's a lot of challenges this day and age as far as attracting and keeping coaches in Major League Baseball. You know, people think as far as the economics go and, you know, there's $25 million salaries and $50 million salaries, so everything goes around. Coaches are a different story, so... Uh, you know, time, time will tell. If you're going to come back this day and age and you're going to be coming back as a coach, you do it, I think, for the love of the game. You're certainly not doing it for the giant paycheck, unfortunately. 100%. Steve Carsey, my friend, always a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for, again, sharing your baseball wisdom and love of the game. And when we're going to come back in the next couple of weeks, uh, it's time to start talking about All-Star Games. And, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with the All-Star Games as far as how I see it. I'll give you some time. I very rarely ever tell you ahead of time what we're going to be talking about, yeah. but I want you to really think about this one and share, you know, ultimately how you feel about all-star games in general. 
where they're at. Are they still relevant? And let's debate that in this year. And let's hope this year we have a good one. Absolutely. I'll think about it. Great for great to have me again. I love being on the show and uh, it, it's been fantastic. And we'll see you all back real soon on The Chosen Journey.